Everybody remembers their first wave, whether it be in the ocean, their first break in business, or their first big win. I'm David McClymont, a former competitive surfer now turned C-suite executive leading the Palm Beach Symphony into its 48th season and your host on the Waves of Success podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to Waves of Success. I'm David McClymont and I'm thrilled to be on location today in the Hilton Hotel located in West Palm Beach. The Hilton Hotel is one of the premier hotels in our area, and it's also the official hotel for the Palm Beach Symphony. I am thrilled to have a very special guest with us today, Gopal Rojagauda, who has led the transformation of this area. We're going to be talking to Gopal a little bit more about reimagining and how they have really transformed the city line here. Gopal, thanks for being with me. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So you've been a busy man. Here we sit in the presidential suite. I must say this might be the only time that I have the pleasure being in the presidential suite at the Hilton. But tell us what you've been up to. You've been a busy person. Yeah, it's, uh, I have been busy, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, just, I guess a little bit of background, you know, on myself might, might put things in context. Um, but I've been with the related companies almost 18 years. So started in 2004 in, in New York. And uh, my, my career has been, you know, heavily focused on hospitality. So a lot of hotel work. Um, that morphed into a lot of placemaking work, a lot of retail, uh, restaurant work, a lot of public space, uh, urban planning work, um, and how sort of the horizontal piece of our projects tie into the vertical components, whether it's office, residential, uh, or hotel, and effectively, effectively, you know, city building, because that's what we do as, as developers related. Um, I, uh, in 2011, after finishing a, a major resort casino project in Las Vegas called the Cosmopolitan Resort and Casino. I met a partner at the company. His name is Ken Himmel, who you know is the, is the CEO of Related Urban Development. Uh, Ken Himmel and Steve Ross have been partners for over 25 years. And Ken and Steve actually um, bid on the RFP to build City Place back in 1995 and, and won that RFP, as you know, in, in 1996. So they've, they've been in this market for you know, 26 years. Um, in 2011, um, because of my hotel background, I got asked by Ken to, to lead this project that we're sitting in, the, the Hilton project. Um, we had just won the RFP to develop a flagship 400-room hotel connected to the Palm Beach County Convention Center here on Okeechobee Boulevard, um, adjacent to what was City Place. And uh, you know, spent about 18 months negotiating a, a ground lease contract with the county, with Palm Beach County. And we broke ground June of 2014, Remember that, and opened the hotel January of 2016. So, so about six and a half years ago. A lot, a lot has happened in that time. And uh, right after opening the hotel, uh, we did a grand opening party. I think in April of 2016, and I was asked to move down here to effectively uh, start the related Southeast platform. Incredible. You and I were talking offline about my history here. So it's sort of ironic that my first four years of life, I was born at Good Samaritan Hospital, which is just north of here. And then we lived exactly where Brio is right now. Actually, it's in between Brio and the movie theaters for the first four years before I moved up to Jupiter. And now fast forward all these years later, and here I am CEO of the Palm Beach Symphony, which is located on Hibiscus. Wow. So I can tell you firsthand, it's been incredible to watch the transformation that you and the team have created. Speak a little bit about the iterations, if you will. You know, it was Rosemary Square, and then it was City Place. And talk to us a little bit about yeah. that. And and yeah. the challenges, I think, you know, one of the things that we love to talk about, Gopal, on the show is business is not straight lined, right? Yeah. It's not an elevator that just goes up to the ninth floor very quickly. 
there are a lot of challenges in business in every single industry. So share with our audience some of the things that you faced and how you overcame those challenges, reimagined and pivoted. Yeah. And I would say there's certainly a lot of challenges in business. I think in, maybe in development, there are more challenges than, than normal because development is a cyclical business. Um, but I guess to kind of rewind back and tied to what I said earlier, um, so related companies won the RFP to to build City Place in, in 1996, um, started building, I think, around 1998. And in 2000, City Place opened. City Place, as you know, because you were here at that time, um, was a very, very pioneering project. And in fact, City Place was a development of regional impact master plan for the downtown of West Palm across 72 acres of land. So it was it was a master plan district in a downtown. Open again in 2000. Um, I, when I look back at the history of how it opened, I look at City Place, and I look at um, what was happening in the country around lifestyle centers. So let me explain to you, a lifestyle center, for lack of a better term, is an outdoor shopping and entertainment district, um, came out of um, you know, mall development and mall developers, because there was an ability to, in, in the nicer climate places, to create these walkable districts with retail, with restaurants, with entertainment, which is which what City Place was. What's amazing, though, is, is you know, Related made this major investment here. Um, as you know, it opened with a bang. Uh, the downtown had never seen anything like this. And it turned out to be a major economic engine and growth engine for the whole downtown, for the whole county. In fact, it was it was it was a place that anyone in Palm Beach County, probably you know, even other parts of of, of Florida, would come to to see. So it was a spectacle. Again, opened in two thousand. Uh, when you look back at, at history, um, in two thousand was the dot com crisis. Um, so obviously, the economy took a hit then, and then. Fast forward to 2008, you had the major financial crisis, which you know because you were living here, had a major negative you know, financial impact on this whole area. Um, so Related owned it through that whole period. And then post-2008, I would say um, you know, when I started get coming here in 2011 and beyond, we, we have what, what I call sort of um, the reinvention, reimagination of the retail space, where retail was slowly pivoting away from pure transactional spaces into experiential spaces. And I can, I can talk a little bit more about kind of what's happening in that world because I spent a lot of time speaking to CEOs in the retail space. So um, back to what I said. So City Place opened in 2000. You had kind of two recessions through 2008. Um, in 2004, I believe the convention center opened without a flagship hotel, the hotel we're, we're sitting in today. And in 2008, across the way from where we're sitting, um, related end up building an office building called City Place Office Tower, uh, which coincidentally, I don't think this has ever happened in the history of our company. Coincidentally, we, we bought back over the last 12 months. We sold in 2009. We usually don't sell assets. Sold it in 2009 and just bought it back. So, so that goes to show you know how, how bullish we are about this market moving forward. Um, and then in 2016, we opened the Hilton um, again with a bang. I, I think that um, I think that to the point of what you made earlier, the convention center was here, but didn't have a flagship hotel. And convention centers, it doesn't take a genius to understand that that convention centers don't work without flagship hotels. The only the only full service hotel here was the Marriott, um, which, as we know, is a little bit fragmented and disconnected from here, and it wasn't close enough for meeting planners to say, "I want to do my conventions here. I want to do my group here." So, opened the Hilton very successfully in 2016, and then in 2017, end of 2017, we opened the 80,000 square foot Restoration Hardware Gallery which is four levels with a restaurant and wine bar uh, at the top. I think I, I think I see you having lunch there quite often, so, so you know what I'm talking about. 
beautiful facility, one of the most successful kind of galleries within the restoration gallery uh, um, portfolio. You were saying among the top in the nation, right? Number yeah, two? Yeah, it's it's definitely amongst the top five in the country. Incredible. W- w- without a doubt. And and it goes to show there's, there's a lot of home and home furnishings that, that um, home furnishing dollars that get spent in this market with all the with all the home purchases and second home purchases and all, all of the above. Well, if I can interject just for one second, I think yeah. it's very fascinating when you think about that property. When I looked back and I saw that you were relocating from the original city place or yeah. whatever it was called then, and you were putting it in the middle of Okeechobee Boulevard, me being the novice that doesn't know much about development said, why would they ever do that? Nobody is going to go there in between Okeechobee Boulevard. Yeah. And now all of a sudden I'm having lunch there all the time. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, you know, it was, it was hard to see what it would become because at that time the gallery concept was still kind of, kind of in its early days. And and the CEO, Gary Friedman, uh, who's a very well-known kind of, you know, um, well-known person in the retail world, um, had a vision, right. And his vision was, to take a uh, furniture brand and create more of a hospitality experience. When you walk into that in that building, it's beautiful. You're not really sure if you're walking into a gallery, a boutique hotel, and of course you get up to the top and you have this amazing atrium space with nano walls. You feel like you could be anywhere in the world. So, so he, he you know, he focuses on design and he did a great job with that. Um, um, so at the time, he he wanted to create this gallery and we had this site which again was part of the original city place master plan but there'd never been a building on it in fact when i was started coming here in 2011 12 we studied doing an office building on the site but it's it's an odd shape and was going to be uh, difficult from a design standpoint to make work so we ended up doing that and then post 2017 um we started a journey to reimagine city place and um as you know i i i, I wasn't part of the original development or design team who designed the project. But the one thing I did know when I got involved here um, was that the world was changing. And not only was the world changing, West Palm was on the cusp of changing. And, and I knew that because we had opened this Hilton Hotel very successfully and ultimately had opened the, the, the restoration at the end of 2017. And I felt when I looked at you know the property we owned in the middle of the downtown and just as a developer as a bird, with a bird's eye view, without any history really, which 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 helped me because I came in kind of with a fresh, fresh perspective, fresh perspective right. which which helped a lot because I think some of the other partners in the company who, who had who had been here for a long time were maybe too close to it, were too close to yeah. it, and 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 hard to see, um, hard to see sort of the light beyond the trees kind of thing. So you know I came here and I looked at it and I said, wow, this is incredible. We have this incredible piece of property in the middle of a downtown, um, anchored on one end, South End Hotel Convention Center. Restoration was on its way. And then on the north end, I knew that the Bright Line train was coming. And the train had not been open. I think the train opened in, in January 2018, sometime around that time. But I knew just being from New York and using you know, the Acela to go between Boston and D.C. and, and New York, that, you know, and also spending a lot of time in Europe and Asia and understanding how important trains are and connectivity is, um, I felt that it was incredible that we were going to have this amazing piece of infrastructure, high-speed train, to connect us one hour to downtown Miami, half an hour to Fort, La- Fort Lauderdale. At that time, they were talking about Orlando, but it was still kind of, you know, not set. Of course, as you know, by the end of the year, they'll be done with Orlando and first queue next year. We'll have connectivity in two hours to Orlando International Airport and eventually Tampa, hopefully. So I looked at this and I said, oh, and by the way, by the way, um, you'll understand this being in, in the in the culture world. I also looked at it and I said, you know, what what is it that is important to the community here? And I looked at it and I said, oh, my God. Kravis Center is next door. 
by the way, even to rewind back even further, you know, Kravis opened in 1995, which is incredible to, to me when I look at the aerials and I say, wow, you know, Alexander Dreyfus had this incredible vision to create a foundation in the downtown around culture. And the Norton Museum of Art had been here historically, but, but you know, to put, I think, one of the top performing arts, you know, you know theaters, centers here, right in the downtown was, was a big move. Right. So, so he understood that culture was going to be a major anchor for the downtown. But Well, I think that goes to the cluster effect, doesn't it? You know, if you talk about cluster, and I think about Wynwood, and you think about some of these other areas that create cluster, sort of fascinating. That was the old high school. That was the Twin Lakes High School. So to your point about Alexander Dreyfus's vision, yeah. it's pretty amazing how much it transformed that area pretty for amazing. arts and culture. Here's another thing I wanted to ask you. I remember you inviting me about seven or eight years ago to the Urban Land Institute conference mm-hmm. at the convention center. And there were a whole bunch of big names in the commercial real estate arena that were talking. And they said, what are the top 10 reasons why people and organizations will move to a particular city? And I think arts and culture was three or four. Yeah, It was among the top five, I remember. And I walked out of there thinking, I didn't realize how important art and culture was to a particular city from an urban planning and a development standpoint. Can you speak a little bit about that? And I know that you've been great supporters of the arts, you're supporters of us. Obviously, we have a great partnership with you at the Palm Beach Symphony, but speak a little bit as to how that becomes a recipe for success. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and I was about to touch upon when I, when, again, when I started this process with my team and, and, and a lot of very smart consultants, team members who were excited about this opportunity. What I saw was downtown and specifically our site was surrounded by major cultural institutions, whether it was the Kravis, the Norton Museum, Palm Beach Drama Works, uh, Palm Beach Symphony being close by, uh, the Four Arts being right across the bridge. I mean, there was so much of a cluster uh, of culture in this area. So, I, so when we were thinking about reimagining here, we, we thought about multiple pillars. Uh, one thing we thought about was public space. And uh, we were fortuitous enough. In fact, during that ULI conference that I invited you to, there was another gentleman there who was the partner of a, of a company called Gell, G-E-H-L. And Gell is a really incredible company I learned about. It's a public realm company. So all they do is focus on public spaces and people and interactions in public spaces. Started by a guy in the 70s, Jan Gell, who that's all he wanted to focus on. Copenhagen-based company. If you've ever been to Copenhagen, it's one of the top quality of life places to live in the world because they focus on public spaces. So Matthew Lister, who's, who's now the partner of the Americas for Gale, was also at that conference. And as I was thinking through this place and, and what it wanted to be, I heard him speak you know, at one of the talks. I said, wow, this is incredible. And I met him and I said, hey, would you, would you want to join us? Because I really think public space could be you know, an incredible component of what we're trying to do here. So, so we, fo- we work with Gale. We focus on public spaces. You know, we Reimagine Rosemary Avenue as the main north-south spine, going from the Hotel Convention Center all the way down to the to, to 360 Rosemary now, and eventually we want to take that design, which is a curbless street, landscaped, walkable, all the way down to Clematis, with a vision to connect Okeechobee to Clematis, with the square in the middle, of, in the heart of all of it, and as you as you know, more more development and density planned. Uh, so public space, um, culture, you know, to your point, I think that. You know, I've always been excited about art. I've been always been excited about public art. Living in New York City, and and in fact, living on the right off of Madison Square Park, so I saw what public art did to the transformation of that park, alongside Shake Shack and Danny Meyer, which is pretty incredible to see the combination of food and and culture, which we're we're doing a lot of here. I'm a huge fan, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I love his book, Setting the Table. I quote yeah. it all the time. It's fantastic. It's unbelievable. Yeah, he's he's one of a kind. I so. use his term all the time: constant, gentle <laughs> pressure. They ask him in the book, how do you, how did you get to be Danny Meyer? And 
have this huge restaurant company. He said, it's very simple, constant, gentle pressure. <laughs> so I use that now, obviously, with the staff and everything else, but go on. Fantastic. So public spaces, culture, as you probably know, we have a major public art program. Uh, we've got four major pieces you know, in, in this district, and we're doing more around the city, and we'll continue to add more public art. Because I think public art creates vibrancy, but, but just as important, public art is inclusive. And I think it's important to think about inclusivity because that's a, that's a big component for us because this is a downtown and anyone can come to our public spaces. Anyone can interact in our, you know, in, in our public spaces around our public art can spend time you know, in our park, call it. Um, experiential retail. We talked a little about restoration and, you know, we, we knew that we wanted to have some of the best brands in the world that were interested in being in walkable, you know, immersive environments that were culture focused and experience focus. So, so with restoration and, and others we have coming that we're talking to that we've already instilled. Um, and then food. I think that, you know, everyone loves restaurants. Um, um, you know, I, I always like to say chefs are the new rock stars, which, which they are, right? I mean, it's with all the, with all the connection to media and, and what has happened, it's pretty incredible. But thinking about, what, you know, what do we want the curation of the retail and the food components to be to make this an exciting, dynamic downtown? So we had public space, art, culture, um, food, experiential retail, density. And I think this is one of the things that when City Place had opened, going back to what you asked earlier, what was a major challenge here was from 2000 to 2016, 17, you know, the density that we all hope for as a company never really got built. You know, I, I like to say that this, this market was um, about internal growth, not external growth. And that has completely changed. I can, I can explain a little bit about that on the, on the office leasing side. Um, and it's almost then, the inverse now, isn't it? Uh, yeah, actually, actually, I would say if we're going to talk about that point in the last 18 months, our team has leased over half a million square feet of class A office space, 80% of which has been new to market. So it's totally flipped, which wasn't the story then, right? You know, if you owned an office building in downtown and, and you were going to build another one or you, you, know, you owned one and others owned others, you were always trying to shuffle the pieces around. So it was internal uh, tenants wanting to go to new spaces and new buildings. And then the last component, which I think is very important, is, is community being at the center of what we do. And as you know, we, we have a great collaboration with Palm Beach Symphony and many other cultural institutions um, that we allow to use our public spaces. We collaborate on events. Um, we want the neighborhood to, to feel like it's the center of the community. Um, and, 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 you know, through those collaborations that happens, you know, with, with organizations here locally, with the city, with the county, uh, and with our brands. One of the things that I always love to ask our guests is how they overcome adversity and challenges. And I know that for you and everything you just discussed, it wasn't always easy. Can you share with the audience a little bit of how you overcame challenges, adversity, how you pivoted? with the team during some of those tough times, whether it be the tech bubble of 99 to 2000, whether it be the subprime debacle of 2008, 9, and 10, share with the audience how you've overcome some of those challenges to reimagine. Yeah. And, and, and to be fair, as I said, you know, some of those early challenges, I wasn't involved until, until later, but, and I, and I give a lot of kudos to our chairman, Steve Ross, who, um, who, who has incredible vision and, and kind of, you know, knows, knows when there's, there's a great opportunity. I loves building cities. You know, so, but I, I think look, in talking about adversity and, 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 and trying to, trying to get through challenge, um, there's nothing more difficult to getting through scenarios where everyone is saying, you know, you're going to fail. Um, I love that because for me, that's a challenge. 
You know, in fact, in fact, it keeps keeps life more exciting and less boring. Um, I, I want to be doing challenging work because it pushes me, it pushes my creative limits, um, and and it actually creates the best work you could possibly produce because you are forced to think even more out of the box to create something that is totally different and dynamic than what it was. If I can interject just for one yeah. second, the first Ironman that I competed in and completed was in 2010 in Lake Placid. Oh. And I think the only reason I completed it is because I had somebody told me there's no way you could do it. Yeah. So it's to your point about being challenged by people that are sitting on the sidelines saying, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah. I, I know what you mean about the Ironman. I've never done an Ironman, but I've done four four marathons. So and, then you and, know. And, and as you know, you yep. know that, that last five miles from 21 to 26 and a half, it's pretty hard. I mean, you, your, your body is basically telling you you can't, you can't finish it, but your mind is getting you over the hump. And, and we, have, we share that experience, but it, it, it's a great analogy, right? Because I, I think being able to sort of push through adversity and, and, and believing in, in, in your vision and having a team behind you, because what I do is a team sport. Um, I mean, it's not about an individual. You know, I, I, I try to be the best leader possible and I try to inspire my team. Um, I, I, I push my team to think out of the box. I hope I, you know, I can lead by example. Um, but it takes, it takes an army to do what I do. And, um, yeah, look, I, I think, I think. Have you read the book Good to Great by Jim Collins? I've heard it. I've heard about it. I haven't he read talks it. about that. He does. Okay. So yeah. he does comparative analysis of same company, same industry and why one was so successful. And one of the case studies was Kmart versus Walmart or Target. And a lot of it comes down to the leadership and being able to inspire teams to rise above those challenges. And another thing they talk about in that book is it's first two, then what? So if you're going to build a company, you've got to surround yourself with people that are obviously a lot more talented than you and then create a culture where you allow them to tell you what to do. So that's, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's the special sauce right it there. It is the special sauce. So, yep. Yeah. Yeah. So. so here's the other thing. Okay. So now related is buying up buildings. You've bought, I believe it's Esperanti, Phillips Point. You're building one Flagler. Is that what they call it? One, one, yeah, Flagler. one Flagler, yeah. You built 360, which is incredible. We have the opportunity to do a concert Thank on you. the 10th Story Terrace there. You guys are on fire. Let me play devil's advocate. And I'd love sure. for you to share with the audience two things. One, how is related assisting with providing affordable housing? I think one of the challenges that we have in this market that many people will speak to is it's great that real estate is doing so well. It's great that people are moving here. Isn't that wonderful? But is it also creating challenges for affordable housing? So first question, what are you doing for affordable housing? Secondly, how are you managing that growth of these incredible buildings where there's demand with traffic? Yeah, two, two you know, very important questions that come up, come up a lot. Um, on the affordable and workforce housing side of things, um, I, I, will, I will say, and I don't, most people don't know this, but Steve Ross started related companies in the 70s as an affordable housing developer. And in fact, today we are the largest owner and manager of affordable housing in the country. So most people don't know that about us, right? They think related. They think you know, you know, high-end office buildings and residences and building neighborhoods, which we do. But you know, back to when Steve started the company, affordable housing has always been a main focus for the company. We have a big affordable housing division in New York. Um, it, it has become very apparent very quickly, um, certainly in this post-COVID world where the growth has accelerated significantly in South Florida. And, and more specifically in places like Miami and Palm Beach, um, that affordable housing is becoming a big challenge. So what I would say is um, we acknowledge that it's an issue, um, and, and we're sort of putting our thinking hats on right now with the city and with the county and others to think about how do we put our platform to use here, uh, our affordable platform, and, and, and help build what I believe is needed is thousands of units in and around the downtown. 
because, you know, being able to, you know, having people be able to walk or take public transport to work is important, you know, and I think more affordable housing will get built out West. We have to think about how do you, how do you get people from, and this ties to the traffic question, how do you get people who are coming here from the West uh, or the South or the North to come to the downtown, right? So on the tra- on the topic of traffic, um, I guess every great city that grows, um, if it's growing in the right direction, will have a traffic challenge. Um, I always like to say it's a good problem to have. Um, if you look at traffic today in the city, traffic is an issue during peak hours. So 7 to 9 in the morning, 4 to 6 p.m. at night. Just like any major city, any 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 downtown, and on the weekends, it's you know as as more restaurants come on, come on board and the crevice is full and there's a lot of activity and vibrancy downtown. More people will spend time are spending time here on the weekends, and it's becoming year round. Whereas before, mm-hmm. you know, as you know, you've lived here for a long time, and and when we kind of dealt with this, you know, in the early days of City Place, um, it was a very seasonal place, meaning you know it would be busy from you know Thanksgiving to to May. And then it drop off for another six months. Well, I spent 15 years working at Bear Lakes Country Club. There you go. And we had about 1,000 members. And every yeah. single year, we would study the migration so that it assisted us with forecasting revenue. Yeah. So if I knew that our members were leaving right around tax time, April 15th, and they were coming back November the 1st, then I could predict revenue streams. And you're absolutely right. I think what has changed that, this is my personal opinion, citing no authority, I think COVID changed a lot of that. Because a lot of our donors that come April 15th, there would be the tractor trailer getting ready to transport their car back up to the Hamptons or New York or yeah. wherever they were going. Yeah. They were stuck down here and realized that it's actually not that bad in May or June. So I think it really changed behavioral patterns as it relates to seasonality with people that were coming down. Definitely. Would you agree with that? I would definitely agree to that. And, and then and I think that the you know, the true office migration that we're seeing and driving right. here. Uh, in younger professionals and younger families living here year round, having kids going to school in August. So maybe they go away for the summer for a couple of months, but they're really here, you know, at least 10 months a year. I mean, I think that's the, that's the, that's what's happening. Uh, back, just real quickly back to the traffic thing, because I didn't fully answer your question. Um, look, I think we're at a point, a fortuitous point where the city is growing exponentially. Very exciting. A lot of, a lot of new people are moving here. Uh, a lot of businesses are moving here. A lot of retailers and restaurants want to be here. Um, it's, it's, it's very exciting to see this come to this point. Um, from a traffic standpoint, you know, public and private need to come together. So, you know, we're we're often working with the city and the county uh, and thinking about things about like, for example, how do we make sure the technology on the traffic lights is the best technology possible? Because we've all been to places where when there's not a lot of pedestrian traffic, the traffic lights are moving faster. When there's more, maybe it's it's more sensitive, but there's technology out there. So I think technology is important. I think last mile mobility solutions are very important. Uh, we both know Rafael Clemente from the Downtown Development Association. He's he's passionate about this, about everything from shared bikes, which we you know partnered with Bright Bright Lines on on Bright Bikes. Um, there's the circuit sco- electric scooter concept that that's here, which is fantastic and free to use in the downtown. Um, and and I think you know for again for getting people from one of the biggest challenges is how do we get people from the west, right, to get downtown outside of using a car. I think that that is that is an interesting challenge. And going back to what we, we talked about earlier, I mean, I, I think the topic of traffic is just like what we're talking about, you know, earlier. It's a mega challenge that smart minds need to come to the table, and the right team needs to be at the table 
to come up with huge, big solutions to make sure that we continue to grow the way we all want to grow as residents in this, mm -hmm. in this city. Well, I also think there's a recipe, isn't there, of these buildings that you're building? And you yeah. showed me the plans, which we'll put up on the website after the podcast. It's very fascinating. Some of those are affordable housing projects, aren't they? Yeah, actually, one of, one of the uh, one of the buildings we're building called 575 Rosemary, which coincidentally um, is at the site of formerly what was Macy's. So getting back to retail and a reimagination, uh, when City Place was built, Macy's was necessary to have a department store in that project. Of course, fast forward to today, it's less relevant. So we, we bought Macy's out of their ground lease and rezoned the site. And uh, in fact, right outside this window, you can see we're pushing dirt. Uh, we're building a 21-story, 322-unit um, um, luxury residential building. But of those 322 units, 15% is workforce housing. So great example of public and private coming right, together. Right, that's what I was going to say. I think yeah. there's a recipe. Obviously, within the downtown footprint, if you have affordable housing, then people can walk to work. They yeah. can walk to restaurants, yeah. like some of the big cities that we have in this country. Yeah. Right. It, 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 we're, we're big believers in mixed housing. And and I think as the city grows, uh, and I know the city and the county are big, you know, highly focused on this, you know, that needs to come into play, you know, as more luxury housing is built, because there also is the luxury customer that wants that higher-end housing, whether it's single-family homes or or, or you know, high-rise living, um, we need to think about how we mix uh, affordable and workforce in. What's next for you and related? What's next? There's um, there's a lot, as I, as I showed you earlier, um, um, this master plan of what was City Place now as the square um, has, has kind of, you know, morphed into, into a plan that I don't even think any of us, including myself, could have conceived initially. And in large part, I think you touched upon it earlier, um, COVID was an accelerator. Um, I think, you know, to the point of what you said, a lot of people from the Northeast and the Midwest, and even the West Coast, were in Florida during COVID and realized, wow, this is such a great lifestyle place to live. And, you know, maybe some people have the flexibility of working hybrid hybrid hours where they don't have to be in the office, you know, five days a week. Maybe they're in the office two or three days a week. Some are fully remote, so that's a whole other story. Um, um, but because of that and because we had time here, during what was a very difficult time period, let's 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 be real about it. COVID was a very challenging time period, but we saw the migration coming, and and that got us really excited about sort of doubling down on the city. You know, I think we we doubled down once, <laughs> you know, 22 years ago, and, and and we were sort of long term loving loving the vision of what we had for for downtown. But that is all multiplied, and um, we're working on multiple buildings. We have 200 construction now. One Flagler's one. One Flagler's right. one and 575 Rosemary, the residential building's another. And I would say in the next five years, you know, there's probably, you know, somewhere in the range of eight to 10 buildings we'd like to build between office, a lot more office density, uh, residential, uh, we'd like to build rentals, uh, maybe some condo product, we're looking at that, and then perhaps another hotel or two. Uh, and then all with all of those buildings, you know, retail, restaurants, activity, vibrancy at the base tied into an active public realm, uh, we, we we were so successful in our work with Gell on the on the public realm work that um, we're we're highly focused on how do you create vibrant cities around public space, and and this is you know they're great examples of of how public space has transformed cities whether you look at the High Line in New York or the Belt Line in Atlanta or um, you know many other examples of how you know public space is a main anchor. So we've we focused on that because we've been successful in the reimagination from City Place to Rosemary Square at the time. Um, I, I think, you know, other things that excite me about what's coming, um, University of Florida. Uh, That's a big one. Which I think is, is... Speak a little bit about that for those people that are listening to yeah. Waves of Success that don't understand what's happening with the University of Florida. 
Yeah. So University of Florida, which, which, you know, I, I didn't realize is, is a top five public u- state university in the country. So major university. Well, know. it's sort of funny because when I grew up, if you said that you were going to UF, the reaction was, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and now it's almost impossible to get into. Yeah. It's a very I have friends that have uh, children that go to Suncoast and Suncoast, as you know, one of the top, one of the top schools in the country and it's IB program and they don't get in. So it's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I, I've learned a lot about it. Um, the, the current president, Ken Fox, is, uh, is formerly, was formerly the president of, of Cornell University uh, and, and led Cornell Tech in New York, which is, which is the Cornell Technology um, Initiative on Roosevelt Island, which has been a major, I think, a major kind of um, attractor of more tech companies um, to the city of New York City. But what University of Florida is looking to do, and, and I understand they're, they're talking and finalizing a deal with the city and the county, which is a 20-acre parcel, one block to the west of the square. Um, between Sapadilla and um, Australian, and sorry, sorry, uh, Sapadilla and Tamarind, Australian goes all the way to the lake. Um, Twenty-acre campus, all innovation-based. So we're talking about cybersecurity, um, um, cr- uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency, sustainability, um, all the tech, the tech things that this city really has not had before. So for me, it's very exciting because today, you know. When you look at sort of employment and you look at economy here, you look at the tenants we're leasing to, which are all fantastic. It's heavy financial services and associated services. Um, I, I do think the future is going to bring tech, and I think I think University of Florida is going to lead the way on that. And I think there's there's more exciting things that the university is looking at doing that could be could be you know great anchors for this community. So I think that University of Florida is fantastic. Um, I'm very excited about public art, as you know. Um, I didn't touch upon it earlier, but uh, we'll, we'll continue um, what we're doing in public art and, and kind of making this an exciting city through 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 you know world world class world renowned public art. We have I told you of the works we have in the square. Um, there's the water pavilion in the middle of the square, which is designed by Jeppe Hein, who's a Danish artist uh, based in Berlin. Uh, Symmetry Labs did the did the wishing tree, which is a, a hyper realistic 25 foot tree that has 100,000 LEDs on it, fully programmable. First one they did was in Burning Man in 2017. Which my kids love, by the way. They do fantastic, fantastic. Um, we have a, a Mumbai-based artist that did this piece on one of the buildings called My East is Your West. I don't know if you've seen that flashing on, on the top of the on building. On the top of the building. Yeah, really great uh, permanent piece. And then on the north end, very proud about a, a piece we commissioned, Yinka Shanabare. Yinka Shanabare is a British-Nigerian sculptor artist based in London um, um, who does a lot of incredible work and we commissioned him to do uh, one of his wind sculptures. So it's a wind sculpture with, with um, sort of this African batik um, painting fabric on, on the exterior, really beautiful, almost looks like a piece of fabric blowing in the wind. Uh, and that piece we did as the first ever public private partnership with the city of West Palm, um, where they contributed some funds. We contributed a majority of the funds. We installed the work, commissioned the work, and then we granted the piece to the city, title of the piece to the city in perpetuity to be part of the city's public art program. So we hope that, you know, we hope that's a precedent for other developers. And then at One Flagler, um, you may have heard the story, but we, as we were acquiring the site, um, we realized that the Christian Science Church, which exists there, which is a beautiful building right off the middle bridge there, uh, built in, in 1928, designed by a group, Horace Trumbauer Architects. What we had discovered, though, however, was the real architect designer of it was it was it was a young gentleman by the name of Julian Abel, 
Julian Abel was the first African-American graduate of University of Pennsylvania's Architecture School. Julian Abel designed the Philadelphia Art Museum. He designed Duke University campus, Widener Museum at Harvard. Um, a lot of prolific, you know, buildings. But at the time, because he was black, he never got credits. So we were, we were very touched by the story. So what we've done is we've created three quarters of an acre of public. First of all, we're landmarking the church in perpetuity. It wasn't landmarked. So we're very excited about it because it's a beautiful structure and it needed to be landmarked. And then we're creating three quarters of an acre of public space around the church. And we are going to commission a world-renowned black artist um, to honor Julian Abel. And then on top of that, we've named the park Julian Abel Park. So, so if, you can, if you can think about sort of public space, public art, history, diversity, inclusivity, we're checking all the boxes because, you know, we get excited about city building. And, 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 and these are the things that are going to put the city on the map. Uh, of course, you know, we're also excited about building, you know, incredibly designed buildings that house, you know, our tenants and our residents and our tourists like the hotel. Uh, but we also think about community and, 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 and how the brand of West Palm is going to continue to rise up. And I think that's where you truly do live up to being great community partners. I know that you have for us personally with Palm Beach Symphony, but I think many other people would say the same. Share with our audience people that have influenced you. Obviously, we all have our mentors, right, Gopal? We yeah. all have the people that inspired us along the way. Who are some people, whether it be relatives, whether it be bosses, that helped, assisted, and inspired you along the way? Yeah, great, great, great question. I've had a, I've had a number of, of, of great mentors over, over the journey, as you know. I mean, you, you can, it's hard to, to get places in life without, without mentors, right? I mean, we all, we all need um, help you know, and, and, and guidance. Um, what, what I would say is, is probably the most important mentor in my life is my father. Um, I, I didn't really touch upon this earlier, but my father migrated to New York city in, in 1965. Um, part of what, part of what is, what is now coined is the Indian diaspora, which are, you know, Indians who left India and spread out all over the world. Um, at that time it was a lot of engineers and doctors. My, my father was a medical doctor, ended up in New York, uh, in Harlem, New York. And then ended up actually um, spending about 48 years at one public hospital in the South Bronx called Lincoln Hospital, where he ran the neonatology department. And so that, that's why my brothers and I, uh, my mother also kind of migrated from India. He got married in India, and then my mother came over. So I have two brothers. We all, we all grew up in, we were born in the Bronx, and then we grew up around New York City, but all because my father, you know, you know migrated here. Um, um, so um, he's been an amazing mentor uh, in so many ways, but just to watch someone um, so passionate about what he does uh, working for the community right for a public hospital he wasn't a, he wasn't a private doctor um, and and excelling in what he did um, and getting through getting through adversity in a way that you that you say so so I, you know I always look at him and I say if he did it and he got through what he got through I mean the 70s 60s 70s in Harlem and, and, and the Bronx was not a pretty place. Um, um, you know, I should be able to do it too. And, uh, he's been always amazing, a major anchor for me and of support. Um, um, and others, you know, I, I've, I've had, you know, many, many mentors at related companies that have taught me, uh, taught me the ways, of course, you know, Ken Himmel is someone that I'm very close to and who, who, who you know, who's done incredible work and, you know, I've learned from him and he's, he's kind of been a great, now he's my partner, he's a great partner. Of course, Steve Ross is, 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 is just, you know, I don't think there's any other visionary out there that I've met that can think as big as he does, you know, which is, it was incredible too. But, um, but, and many more, you know, friends, uh, family, my wife, I have a nine month old kid at home. He inspires me every day. 
uh, as I told you earlier. We talked about that before the show. He's starting to get up on, you know, stand up, which is inspiring. <laughs> Talk talking about getting, you know, getting through adversity, right? So, so yeah, so there's 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 a lot. Talk to the audience about work-life balance, which is obviously so important for leaders like you and I. How do you yeah. unplug? What do you like yeah. to do? What inspires you? Yeah, it's tough. You know, it's it's, it's tough when you when you have a lot on your plate. Obviously, running. So yeah. you've done some marathons. So that's yeah. one of the things that's a passion for you that you like to do. Yeah, I mean, I would say you know one of the things that I love about living in Florida that I didn't know until I actually moved here from more of an urban environment like New York is 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 access to the outdoors. So so I, I live you know, adjacent to, to the hotel, as I told you in Grandview Heights, I walked to work every day, which is a special thing for me, kept a little bit of my New York spirit. Um, but yeah, I, I run to the beach a few times a week. Um, I cycle, um, you know, I do some pretty long rides. Um, I'm actually I've gotten pretty into yoga and meditation in the last, last year and a half. I have too. So, so, you know, I mean, I think staying fit and staying not only physically fit, but mentally fit is absolutely critical, um, to, to being able to do your job and, being able to kind of, you know, be there as a leader and also as, as a father and, and, and a husband. Too. So true. Yeah. We all need that work-life balance. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you want to share before we close out? I, you know, I think, I think, you know, as we're talking, I'm, I'm thinking about this notion of West Palm Beach and what could set West Palm Beach apart from other South Florida cities. And I have this, um, I have this amazing kind of big picture vision that I've talked to Raphael and others about, and that is, I think that West Palm Beach could be South Florida's first 15-minute city. And, and, and you might not have you know, heard about what a 15-minute city is. A 15-minute city is a, is, a, is a term that was coined by the mayor of Paris, and, and Hidalgo. And that is um, living within a city where you can access everything within 15 minutes of your residence. So that means through walking, biking, or public transport. So that's, that's kind of the life I live. Right, because I live in Grandview Heights. Of course, not everyone. You, you live in Jupiter, so it's it's a little bit farther away. Um, but in West Palm Beach, I, I see this becoming this walkable, connected city where you can live, work, play, discover, education, all within this tight tight knit fabric, if it's planned properly. So I, I get very excited about that idea because I, I think cities of the future are going to be sort of you know micro environments like that. Where where you have all the amenities and everything you need within this small environment, and it's and it's and it's um it creates kind of these these smaller kind of very active communities. So so that that, that excites me, and, and I'm um you know I'm excited to talk with the city, the county, Raphael, you know you know more more people here who are invested in the city and want to see it grow. Well, I think that's already started. I know that I work right right off of Hibiscus in the symphony offices, and I walk all over. I walked here yeah. today, which isn't very far, go. but yeah. I could have taken the car, but I walked. Yeah. And I walked through the square. It was incredible. It was active. Yeah. yeah. Gopal, I want to thank you so much for being my guest on Waves of Success. It's been a pleasure, and I wish you nothing but continued success. And I want to thank you on behalf of the symphony for everything you guys have done to support us and all the other arts organizations in the community. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our show with Gopal today. I want to thank all of you for tuning in to Waves of Success. And until next time, make sure you catch your wave. <laughs>